This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Vas Christodoulou, and this is the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. Like Jared Diamond and Yuval Noah Harari, this week's guest is a man whose ideas encompass the entire span of human history. But he is not a historian, he's a video game designer, the creator of the legendary Civilization series. Games of such depth and complexity that they feature on university curricula across the United States. His name is Sid Meier. I caught up with Sid to explore his life and work as one of the early pioneers of what is now an $80 billion industry. Sid, you're often touted as the game designer's game designer. But when your career began in the 70s, computer games hardly existed, and neither did home computers. Nevertheless, right from your first days programming IBM mainframes with punch cards as a University of Michigan student, you knew that you wanted to teach computers to play games. In fact, to you, it was already self-evident that this is what computers were for. How did you reach that conclusion? And how did you begin to make your fantasy into a reality? I guess it seemed uh, totally natural to me. I mean, I'd, I'd grown up playing games. I mean, as a kid, I always invented games and made games and played games. Uh, and I was attracted to computers when I went to college. I was kind of into science and math and things like that. And computers were like the new cool thing. And it seemed natural to me to combine those two interests that I had. Uh, I mean, you know, AI, things like that. There were a lot of kind of really fascinating topics that that were related to computers and a lot of them applied to games. So yeah, in college, dealing with a mainframe and punch cards, but I was still kind of interested in how we could make um, games out of, uh, you know, with computers. I I think uh, I was not intimidated. It's probably uh, an advantage of youth to not be intimidated by, you know, how big and powerful these computers are and locked away in their refrigerated rooms. Sure, they would have fun playing games. Let's do it. In the late 70s, a home computer was released that let you take your hobby to the next level. And you built a game that opened your eyes to the emotional power of this new art form, even though today we might think of it as crass and kind of tasteless. (laughs) Tell us about the Amiga and Hostage Rescue. Well, my first computer was an Atari uh, 800, and um, it was kind of the first 
computer that was designed for games before that, like the the Apple, the original Apple, and you know, there's there are computers with paper tape, and you had kind of had to build them yourself. But the Atari was was built by a game company and it was designed for games. So uh, I, I got one of those and I started making games, kind of based on what I've been playing in the arcade. You know, I mean, so my uh, my take on Space Invaders was to very cleverly have the invaders come from the side instead of from the top. Uh, I thought that was an incredible innovation. Um, so I uh, put together a game called uh, Hostage Rescue, where you were bringing in these helicopters and there's this gigantic Ayatollah character who's shooting things at you as you try to rescue the hostages. Um, very space in- invaders-ish. And I... I took it home to, and showed my family and my mom wanted to try it out and she grabbed the joystick and started, you know, moving the helicopters around and, but then the missiles started flying and she got really excited and, and it, you know, at a certain point said, I can't take this anymore and ran off uh, into the other room to, to hide for a while. And uh, it was kind of a realization that there's something about, you know, just a few pixels on the screen um, that can really generate an emotional response. And, you know, there might be something to this whole computer game thing. We were at the, the very early stages of the industry and, you know, there's no guarantee that we would be, uh, you know, be around for a while. It was just a very, a very new thing that only kind of, you know, nerds and geeks were doing. Um, and, but I saw that, it, you know, it might have a, a wider appeal and, so we kept on going. You were working at this time for General Instrument, where you were very lucky in having a Nova mini computer, which was the size of an entire cabinet. And you would <laughs> program games on that during the day. And your company sent you to a conference in Las Vegas, where you had a meeting that changed your life and perhaps the history of interactive entertainment forever. Tell us about that. Well, yes, yes. Um, so I was fiddling around with uh, making games on my Atari and uh, really for my own uh, amusement and my family's. I uh, ran into Bill Staley at a conference that General Instrument uh, organized in Las Vegas. We were in different divisions, but we worked for the same company. We were in the same building. And we just happened to be sitting across from each other. And at lunch, uh, we started chatting and it came out that Bill had um, was in the, had been in the Air Force, and I was making some games, and we you know we kind of chatted about that. He was interested in games. Um, we wandered around uh, Las Vegas, and we ended up at the uh, casino where they had uh, a bunch of arcade games, and uh, one of them was Red Baron, and uh, Bill, being the Air Force guy, you know, said, "Let's play this," and he he hopped in there and. Did okay, <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I was watching, I was paying attention, and I, and I jumped in, and, and I started flying, and you know, I got a higher score than he did, and he was like, "That's not possible." I'm, you know, I'm an Air Force guy, and you're just a nerdy programmer. How did you do that? And I kind of explained, well, you know, I noticed, you know, the AI was programmed in this specific way, and I figured out a strategy to counter that. And he, and he said, "Oh." Uh, wow, you're kind of a smart guy. Uh, let's start a company. And uh, I said, okay, let's let's do this. And that was the beginning of Microprose. It was a beautiful friendship. 
Bill is the opposite to you in so many ways. He's an extrovert. You mentioned that he's a military pilot. He's a born salesman. Can you tell us a bit about the early days of Micropose and um, how you formed such an excellent team? Well, that was part of the secret of our success is that we really had very separate interests and very, very separate talents. So all the stuff that he enjoyed doing, the business, the marketing were things that I really didn't want to do and making games, creating games. That was what I wanted to do. And that was not his strength. So we really complimented each other. Um, didn't get in each other's way in the early days. It was just uh, the two of us. I hadn't even quit my day job. I was making games in my spare time, evenings and weekends. And he was on the road. And when he had a, you know, a moment uh, to sell, he would go and sell. And it was, it was just a, a process of trying to figure things out. I remember uh, there was a moment when, when I got a call from him and he was driving down a uh, highway. He had stopped at a, a mom and pop uh, computer store. And he said, Sid, I just sold 50 Hellcat Aces. Um, I think you can quit your day job now and we'll make a go of this. And it was, okay, let, you know, again, let's, let's take the next step and see what happens. One of the other issues that you were working on in this early stage of the video game industry was violence. You have a passionate dislike of violence, even in the virtual world. Where does that come from? Well, violence doesn't add any joy to me to kind of gratuitous violence. It does not add a lot of joy to game playing to me. So it was, a, it was kind of a, a personal choice, but also acknowledgement that our games are played by a, a wide range of ages. And there's, there are messages, you know, there, there are things that... that uh, we're inviting people to spend hours and hours to play our game. So we do need to be aware of, you know, what the messages that are, that are sent. So, um, you know, violence was not uh, essential to the, to the games that we were making. And so we, we, uh, we omitted it to the extent that there was kind of an unwritten rule that nobody would ever die in one of our, in one of our games. And we, we uh, actually had some fun with that. We're in, in pirates. If, the, the ship was sinking, all of your sailors would jump off and swim away. Or in railroads, there's a scene where you, the, bridge, the bridge is out and the train crashes into the river, but the conductor and the engineer jump out at the last minute and they're saved. <laughs> so it was something we actually ended up having fun with. Despite your aversion to uh, killing characters in games um, and violence more generally, three of your games were banned in Germany for glorifying militarism. And this was at the same time as video game censorship was becoming an issue in the US. How did you navigate that? And what are your thoughts on uh, critics of video games today who complain about the excessive violence of the industry? I think it was a side effect of the, the, the very newness of this industry. I think people were watching kids play these games for hours, but they didn't really understand, you know, didn't play them themselves. Um, and that intersected in Germany with, you know, their history and a really a, a kind of a desire to, to downplay the militarism. Our games at the time, F-15, Silent Service, et cetera, had um, militaristic elements to them. So it was just kind of an artifact of the time, not perhaps being as familiar with what we were doing, uh, and also some, uh, I assume, political uh, considerations. You know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of, of censorship, and um, I'm not here to tell other designers what they should or shouldn't 
put into their games. Um, you know, we, we make those decisions on what we feel comfortable with. You know, the role of game criticism today, I, you know, I, I think there's so many games out there these days that it's helpful to have a guide, helpful to know, uh, you know, this game is going to appeal to you if you like this or that. Uh, it's not going to appeal to you if you don't like this or that. So there, there's, a, there's a role for game designers, there's a, a role for game critics, and there's a, a role for the community. And we all have a part to play in this uh, industry. Let's talk about Sid Meier's Pirates, exclamation <laughs> mark. The first game that bore your name in the title. And it turned Sid Meier, the introverted game designer, into Sid Meier, the global brand. How did that come about? Well, there, there are a couple of stories uh, around that. I'll tell you my story first, and then I'll, I'll uh, tell you Bill's story. As I recall, I had done a couple of military games, um, F-15 and Silent Service, and I wanted to try something different. I wanted to do a, a pirate game. There was a time when they were kind of text adventures were popular, and I wanted to do a more kind of cinematic type adventure. And what, what better topic than pirates? So um, I started working on this game and Bill, you know, kind of came along and said, I'm working on this cool pirate game. And he said, well, great, but we need more of those military games. People seem to like those military games. And I said, well, yeah, but I really think this pirate game is going to be cool. I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling it. And he said, uh, okay, but we'll put your name on the game so that the people that like the military games might connect the two and say, well, you know, I like the other games, so I'll give this Pirates game a try. And uh, that kind of seemed to work out. So from then on, uh, when I did a game, my name went on the, uh, on the box. The irony being that uh, one of our philosophies as uh, game designers is that we need to kind of recede into the background to let the player take the starring role. Uh, so it, it did kind of become a, a brand and, you know, identify a certain style of design, a certain kind of gameplay. Um, but it was um, kind of generated by me making a left turn and wanting to, to brand the game. Now, Bill also tells a story about meeting uh, Robin Williams and having a conversation where Robin Williams suggested, well, you know, everybody knows the director of this movie or the star of this movie why do we not know who is behind these video games? Apparently, Robin Williams was a was a quite a gamer. Uh, and he even named his daughter Zelda, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and apparently, that stuck with Bill, and he decided that might be a good idea. So, couple couple things converged, I guess, and and uh, my name went on to Pirates. Sid Meier's Pirates! Exclamation mark expressed a design philosophy that later made you famous. Uh, it's the idea of a game as a series of interesting choices or decisions. And it's a new approach to telling stories in this very unique medium. Tell us where this insight came from and how you put it into practice. Well, it was, uh, for me, it was the game I wanted to play. Uh, you know, this is often what we do. We, we want to play this game, but it hasn't been written yet. So let's Let's write it. And there were a number of text adventures uh, popular at the time where you were basically interacting with a parser and trying to figure out what words did or did not understand. And my idea was to take a, a different, a, a cinematic approach to it. When you're watching a movie, it doesn't 
run in real time or doesn't cover everything. It kind of goes from one high point to the next. There's, there's a car chase. There's a, uh, there's a conversation. Two days later, this happened. And I wanted to kind of make a game, again, which focused on the highlights of this story that we were telling. It didn't, it didn't involve a lot of uh, kind of, you know, trying to find the right word to say or all the, all the superfluous de- details would be thrown away and it'd be sword fighting and ship battles and meeting uh, famous characters and uh, learning sailing the Caribbean and swashbuckling, uh, you know, kind of focus on all those those parts and and, and leave the other stuff uh, behind. And we had actually developed kind of a cool technology to show a piece of art with each decision that we asked you to make. And the decisions were all menu driven. So you didn't have to guess what your options were. They were right, you know, your three choices were right there. Uh, what do you want to do next? You know, A, B, or C. So there's no uh, kind of confusion about what your options were. And it was a very clear and straightforward game to play. You're, you're constantly moving forward. Uh, we had also, at that point, developed a technology where we could smoothly scroll a map. And that was one of the, the seeds of the pirate idea that, you know, we can scroll this map. Now, what, what is this map of? And why are, we, why are we traveling around in this world? Well, it's the Caribbean, and you're traveling to find treasure. Okay, sold. It wasn't easy putting a swashbuckling adventure onto the tiny memory of a late 80s home computer. And the constraints that you faced actually enabled your team to innovate and be more creative and imaginative. Can you tell us a bit about how limitations imposed by technology have enriched games throughout your career? Well, yes, there, there are a couple of advantages to technology limitations. You kind of know when you're done because you can't do anymore. You run out of memory or you run out of computer horsepower. Uh, another aspect is a, a number of our games were actually based on some new technological discovery that we made. I, I figured out a way in, in the early Atari days to tap into the vertical blank interrupt and make a graphic on the screen where the horizon would bank left and right. And that turned into Hell, Hellcat and Spitfire Ace. So for F-15, I figured out how to create a wireframe of, a, of an airplane that could be rotated and pitched in any direction. And we said, okay, let's make an airplane game out of that. So a lot of the earlier games were driven by some kind of technical innovation that we discovered. And then we kind of figured out what, what game would benefit from this particular technology. Uh, those days are long gone. Our technology can do much more than we can imagine these days, but a lot of the early uh, games were driven by that. And uh, not only innovations that we discovered, but we would look at a new game and it's like, how did they do that? I didn't know you could do that. Uh, when I first played Seven Cities of Gold, it was generating this random continent every time and the disc was spinning and the whole, I mean, it was like something was happening magical in there and I had to figure out what it was. So technology, uh, the limitations of technology were, 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 uh, were a driving force, but also kind of pushing those limitations and making a game out of it was, was part of the whole uh, process of, of advancing at, the, at that time. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And there are times in the history of computing when you've been weary and scared of technological developments because you think they're going to ruin your creativity. I'm thinking of 3D graphics, of CD-ROMs full of cinematics. That, that's true. There, with, with the new ability, there's the obligation to, to use them. And uh, I was uh, cautious about CD-ROMs. Uh, my concern was, yes, we can, you know, we... Uh, kind of our, our holy grail at the time was interactive story or interactive movies. And um, now the capacity for storing those things was, was there with a CD-ROM, but it wasn't the kind of game that I wanted, wanted to make. Uh, similarly with 3D, early on, 3D was pretty uh, slow. And, um, you know, it was kind of a trade-off of, yeah, 3D gave, gave you these uh, advantages, but it also had these disadvantages. And I, being, you know, comfortable in our world of 2D and then eventually 2.5D, I was, I was a little slow to embrace that technology. But um, fortunately, there were others in the company that uh, were more adventurous. Age 28, you set yourself the ambition of writing the ultimate strategy game. And when you were 36, you realized that dream with the game that will be named on your tombstone, Civilization. <laughs> For those listeners who haven't played one of the games in the series, can you give us the elevator pitch? Civilization is a game that invites you to lead a small band of settlers to forming a civilization, which you then take through 6,000 years of history exploring the world, developing new technology, meeting and interacting with the great leaders of the world, choosing your strategy from among technology, military, diplomacy, economic, all the different pieces are there to create a story that is unique to you and hopefully end in a, in a glorious victory for your civilization. When you were designing this game about being the ultimate ruler, you actually shed your responsibilities for leading microprose and handed the reins fully to Bill. So you're not actually interested in having power in real life, are you? Can you speak to that apparent contradiction in your character between simulating leadership for fun while being happy to work as a lone wolf in real life or being collaborative rather than managerial? Well, I think at their core, all video games allow you to step into a role that you are not probably in in real life, whether it's the leader of a civilization or the captain of a, of a pirate ship or a pilot in an airplane. I mean, these are all 
the appeal of these games is that you can't do this. You probably don't have the opportunity to do this in real life, but in a video game, you could do that. So I think there's a difference between the kind of games a person likes to play and the kind of life perhaps that a person would prefer to have. And um, my goal has always been to put myself in a position where I can design and make games. So uh, I realize that means there's things I can't do. And I think running a company would conflict <laughs> very heavily with trying to make games. Um, so I was very happy to have Bill running the company and kind of carve out my own space where I could, uh, I could make games. So that was, again, uh, you know, a, a, a positive development in my mind. Civilization articulates a Whiggish philosophy of history. So the idea in civilization is that your empire makes continual progress, be that through military strength, scientific strength, cultural influence. How did you develop this view of history that the, the game expresses? And, and how do you balance the tension between making an entertaining game and your obligations to the societies you depict and to historical truth? Um, we have very limited obligation to historical truth, I have to say. Uh, our, our priority is a fun, enjoyable, perhaps a little bit of learning experience. Um, so, our, you know, we, one example, uh, one of the early designs of, of Civilization had kind of the rise and fall theme where you would, um, you know, you'd build your civilization and about halfway through the game, there'd be this setback uh, with the idea that wouldn't it be even more satisfying to kind of come back from this setback and, and your civilization rises again. Um, what we found was that as soon as the setback happened, people would reload a save game that they had saved a little earlier and play from there. So this uh, kind of continuous growth, continuous progress is really what we discovered is the most satisfying gameplay experience. So it, uh, it's not that we necessarily know whether or not this is a characteristic of, of history. Perhaps it's not. But it is a characteristic of the most satisfying gameplay experience. So that's why it's part of civilization. Given the themes of the series, perhaps it's no surprise that you've received what I imagine for a game designer is an unprecedented amount of feedback from the academic and educational communities. Sometimes they celebrate the series for its educational qualities, sometimes criticize it for perhaps glorifying in militarism or for the historical inaccuracy I alluded to. I'd like you to elaborate a bit on this. Why is it that the Civilization series has been taken so seriously in a way that most video games are not? What are your thoughts on having the title in college curriculums in the US? And on the other hand, how have you navigated critical feedback with regard to cultural sensitivities, real-life historical horrors, and moral quandaries? Well, I think, you know, perhaps the reason it's taken somewhat seriously is the title. Calling it Civilization was a, was a, bold, <laughs> a bold move. Let's call it by its true title of Sid Meier's Civilization. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so that's perhaps that's inviting, uh, you know, kind of academic scrutiny. I'm not sure, but... Um, you know, I think for, for the player, the more the, the sense of I'm learning something about the real world, these are real world figures, I'm using my own intrinsic knowledge about technology, et cetera, to play this game, makes the game a better experience. So we're definitely trying to create an experience that you could say this relates in some way to the real world. The things I'm learning here could have some applicability. 
but it's not um, for us. It's not about uh, recreating history or reliving history. It's about creating your own history, giving you these tools, which we're all familiar with, but then you take the story in whatever direction you, you want it to go. So there's no guarantee if you're looking at it academically that history will repeat itself or, you know, historical events will, will correspond to things that, that happened in, in the original history. These are all new histories, but it's, it's, it's a compliment, I think, to us that people take it this seriously and, and think there are things that can be learned from it. How do we take the criticism? I think some of it we learn from. I think, you know, I, over, the, over the years, the series has actually become more uh, diverse, more culturally aware. And, you know, if there are things that are problematic, we try to deal with them. But, but the game is not uh, really about trying to reflect, you know, kind of today's issues and challenges. It's really uh, kind of these, these moral dilemmas that, you know, that, that you mentioned. I think that we're, we're not trying to put the player in a position of trying, you know, kind of having to do something to be successful in the game that they would feel uncomfortable with, for example. So it's at the end of the day, it's about having fun, but it's having fun in this world that has some interesting parallels to, to the real world. Anyone who's played Civilization will know just how addictive it is. It's famously a game that keeps people up all night. Everyone wants to take just one more turn. And the fifth iteration of the game alone has been played for more than a billion hours. And I have to confess, I started a new game of Civilization VI on Sunday night to quote unquote, prepare for this interview. Though of course that was just an excuse. (laughs) What is it about the game that makes it so compelling? And what would you say to address the concerns of those worried that the game is addictive to the point of being detrimental to people's lives? Well, we first noticed this uh, kind of one more turn phenomenon in the Civ 1 days when we would hand the game to our playtesters or other people in the company, and they would have uh, trouble stopping playing the game. This was kind of a new phenomenon for us, and we... We actually tried to figure out what was what was happening, and we we broke it down to the idea that in Civ you're you're, you're always managing you, uh, two or three goals at the same time, whether it's exploring this new continent that you just ran into, or uh, understanding the relationship with this new leader, or there's a technology that you're about to discover, and seeing what that um, you know what unfolds after that. So there's always uh, your your mind is almost always in the future to a certain extent, I- imagining what might happen next and making your your plans for that so you're you're always looking to see whether your expectations of the future are going to be realized or will it will a new kind of an interesting challenge arise so there's never a point where things are kind of at at rest and all the questions have been have been answered there's always that one more turn to see what's what's going to happen and um the fact that it's turn-based kind of allows gives you the time to think about these things you can spend as much time as you want uh, projecting out different strategies and thinking, you know, planning what you want to do next. So uh, that has kind of led to to the uh, the one more turn phenomenon. Now, um, you know, you ask about addictiveness, and you know, I, I think there's I have two answers to that. One is you're asking me, you know, to make an addictive game. I mean, you, <laughs> you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, if I were to put out a game that was not addictive. 
you would say, Sid, something wrong with this game. I don't really feel like playing it. <laughs> uh, so a, a, you know, a certain amount of addictiveness is kind of a requirement for games. Now, whether we can fine tune that addictiveness to the perfect uh, level is, is an interesting question, but we, you know, for, we have our share of anecdotes of our uh, players where civilization has been a you know, very positive influence in their life and um, um, you know, gave them things that they could use in school, impressing their teacher by knowing all the great leaders of the world, or uh, you know, a number of incidents. You know, we think that the experience of playing Civ does exercise your 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 brain, your decision making, and introduces you to some useful uh, facts about uh, about the world. Um, We've heard other stories as well, <laughs> but it's a characteristic of games that they, um, they're there to entertain you. And, and uh, can you have too much entertainment? I don't know, I'll let, I'll let somebody else decide that. There was a time that being addicted to civilization saved someone's life. That is true. We, we, got, uh, we received a letter after Civ 1, uh, back in the days when letters existed. Um, and it was, um, you know, dear Sid, I like your game, Civilization. I'm having a great time playing it. I have to tell you, this game uh, actually saved our lives. Um, one, one night, my mom was in the basement playing Civilization. She couldn't stop, played until late in the night. And at a certain point, she smelled some smoke, uh, realized there was a fire. She got the, the family out. Uh, we were all saved. So civilization saved, uh, saved our family. So that's whenever I hear a story with a different ending, I uh, always come back to that and say, well, you know, perhaps you had to take one year of college over again. I'm sorry about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but civilization does save lives. One of the great pleasures I've had in reading your memoir is that there are so many lessons in creativity that are useful both for game designers and for people who are creative and innovative with other media. Can you share some of those lessons with our listeners now? Well, I think of, of creating a game as kind of a, of a journey. Um, there's a, a destination, there's a goal, there's some, something that you're trying to accomplish, but you're not really sh exactly sure how to get there. And uh, the, the keys for us are iteration, trying things, not falling in love with an idea just because you thought of it. It might work, it might not. And being willing to throw things away, being, being willing to change. Taking input from other people and uh, respecting that. We have a, a saying that feedback is, is fact. Um, that if somebody says, you know, I was playing the game and I got to this point and it, it wasn't fun anymore, you know, and, and you know, my reaction is not, uh, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You were still having fun. You didn't realize it, but you were, you were having fun. Uh, no, you weren't having fun. I have to accept that as, as fact. So getting that feedback, you know, treating it uh, seriously is important. Being willing to throw things away, being willing to try new things. We have the double it or cut it in half rule, which is basically if you need to change something, make a dramatic change. That'll really uh, highlight, you know, whether this was working or not working. If, if it's too big of a change, you can always back it off. But making a little change, you might, it's hard to be sure whether that really did anything. So we have the, you know, if it's, if it's too big, cut it in half, or it's too small, double it, uh, and, and, and see what happens. So exploring a lot of possibilities before you kind of end up 
with the, the final result is, is a, a big part of our process. Finally, I would be wasting the opportunity to interview you if I didn't ask, what are you playing at the moment and what would you recommend to our listeners, be they experienced players or novices? I enjoy, I enjoy playing games. I enjoy making games. Um, the games, the, so Minecraft, I mean, it's been around for a while, but that certainly was a game I spent a lot of time with. Uh, more recently, I've been playing um, a little game called Overland, which is a fun um, experience. You can kind of pick it up for a while, and, and whenever there's a, a need for a little change of pace. Another, I, I have the Xbox Live subscription, so it's fun to to check out a lot of little, you know, a lot of games that are on there. Um, and the, I think the Flo- Fire in the Flood was another little game that I that I really enjoyed playing. I'm a big fan of, of racing games for some reason, so. I had to get one of those steering wheels and, you know, set it up for uh, whether it's Forza, Gran Turismo, or, you know, those, those games, I enjoy them as well. Uh, so you made a Formula games. One game once early in your career, but it's not something you've returned to. <laughs> yes, one of the very first games I made was called Formula One Racing, and uh, luckily the Formula One people never heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of it, <laughs> but um, it was a top-down racing game, and uh, I just you know all the so many fun things you know that that I did when I was a kid, whether it was uh, reading about pirates or play you know turned into turned into games you know making a railroad whatever. So you know racing, I thought race driving a car that could be a fun thing. So all these things turned into turned into games. Sid, I would love to stay in chat, but as I mentioned, I've got a game of Civilization VI running and I need to get back to it. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Sid Meier, whose new memoir, entitled Sid Meier's Memoir! Exclamation mark, is out now. The editor was John Doughty. The show was produced and presented by me. The podcast is back next week, but you can hear more from our guests every night between then and now by tuning into our programme of live streams. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. And Vas Christodoulou, thanks for listening. <laughs>